all other ground is sinking sand. Do you believe that this morning? You know, the mark of a Christian, one of the many marks of a Christian, is that he or she has come to recognize that that is indeed the case. That to build our lives on anything other than anything or anyone other than the Lord Jesus Christ is to build our lives on nothingness, on sinking sand. But to build our life on Christ means eternal life. It means stability. It means flourishing. It means eternal bliss with the Lord. But you know, the truth is that we oftentimes do fall into building our lives on sinking sand. We often do as Christians fall into making our jobs or our families or our hobbies or our future plans or our leisure time, our vacations, our yard, whatever, the ground upon which we build our lives. You know, there's grace for that. There's grace for that today as we come together to consider that the Lord Jesus Christ has died for our sins. He has died for our building our lives on sinking sand. And so we come this morning to him seeking his mercy, crying out with that publican there, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's the way we come to the Lord. If you would go with me to Genesis 35. We are working our way through Genesis, and we now come to chapter 35. This chapter, aside from the genealogical material on Esau, which I know everyone here is looking forward to uh, next time, but aside from the genealogical material on Esau in chapter 36, this chapter is the last main section of Genesis before we get to the Joseph narratives. So we've got this, and then we've got the the genealogical material on Esau, and then we're with Joseph right up till the end of the book of Genesis. So we've basically almost reached the last story, major story of the book. As I've said before, this is one of my favorite stories from childhood, the story of Joseph in Egypt. And, you know, we all have those, right? If you have been, maybe been raised in church or even if you came to the Lord later, you still from early on in your life or your life with the Lord or your life itself, you have those passages that just stuck. They entered in and they stuck in your minds. And this is one of those great stories for me. That as a child, I saw God as large, as great. That even though God's workings, his appearing, his doing is not at the, at the front of the Joseph narratives. He's behind the scenes as the great providential God. That he's working, much like we read in the book of Esther. He's there dealing in all of these details, raising up Joseph and protecting the covenant people of God. These passages that we come to are meant by the Lord to constantly bring us back to the glory of God, to who he is. And so I'm looking forward to that. I hope you are as well, but we're not quite there yet. We are uh, standing uh, on the other side of a genealogy, so we will be there soon. Earlier, you heard Mark read from Genesis 28. Genesis 28. Why would we select our scripture reading from Genesis. We are in Genesis, and especially from the section of Genesis we're currently going through. When I, at the beginning of the, throughout the week, when I select the the, the passage that we read, it is meant to be a passage somewhere else in the Bible that corresponds in some way to what we're looking at in in the sermon. And so I'm looking for a passage that brings forward maybe some of the main themes Or maybe some of the characters that we're looking at in the scripture from the sermon. So why would I put as our scripture reading for today, Genesis 28, which is part of really where we're at. The answer is, because what we find in Genesis 35, our passage for today, marks the end of what really began in Genesis 28. So these are like two parentheses. 
Two brackets. We go back to Genesis 28 and we're looking at the beginning of a story of Jacob. And we come to the end of that story in a way here in chapter 35. So it's helpful as we come to chapter 35 to have Genesis 28 clearly in view. One commentator, Alan Ross, says this about Genesis 35. Genesis 35 brings to an end the full account of the Jacob stories. So we really are coming to the end of something. Chapter 35 is a finale passage. It is a concluding passage that began in chapter 28. Even though the rest of Genesis is still technically about Jacob. And we're going to see that when we come to the end of the book of Genesis. We're going to see that Jacob is still the main figure. So technically, Jacob is going to take us through to the end of the book. And that's why at the end of the book, we have Jacob's death. We have Jacob blessing and speaking prophetic words over his son. We have Jacob coming to Egypt and blessing the Pharaoh. That Jacob technically is still the main character of the story of Genesis as we're moving towards the end. However, we will see that the focus now moves to his sons. After chapter 35, the focus is not on Jacob, but on his sons. And at the center of this finale passage, chapter 35, we have the return to Bethel. And so you'll notice in your bulletin, you'll see there the title for today's sermon, Back to Bethel. In Genesis 28, God appeared to Jacob in a dream as he was traveling from Canaan to Mesopotamia. He was going from his family's house, his immediate family. He was leaving there because of his brother's hostility. His brother wanted to kill him, Esau. And so he leaves from there also to find a wife among his his, family. relatives, his distant relatives in Mesopotamia. And so he leaves and it is in this traveling, this leaving Canaan and going to Mesopotamia all alone with nothing that the Lord God comes to him, appears to him. And Jacob named the place where God appeared to him. He named that place Bethel. And Bethel means the house of God. And Mark just read that to you a moment ago. And Jacob vowed to return to this place if God would watch over him. And so in a sense, ever since chapter 28, we've had a lot of material to work through, but we've really just been waiting to get back to Bethel. All the chapters between chapter 28 and 35 are really moving in the direction of Jacob coming back to Bethel. And that's where we find ourselves today. After God revealed himself to him there in that place in a dream, Jacob faced more than 20 years, over, well over 20 years of trials mixed with God's watchful care. And so we've really seen three frames in the story. If we, if we go from that time over two decades ago in chapter 28, we go from that time to the time we're in now in chapter 35 We've really seen three major movements of the story. We've seen the Laban deceptions. Remember Jacob, when he gets to Mesopotamia, there's a great warm greeting. Laban embraces him, his uncle. But then immediately Laban starts to deceive Jacob. Laban starts to mistreat Jacob. And he has to endure that for 20 years. Quite a trial. And then we have the Esau encounter. As if, it were, as if it were not enough for Jacob to be there under the deceptive mistreatment of his uncle. Then we see that as Jacob immediately gets out from underneath the shadow of his uncle, he has to face the prospect of being slaughtered by his potentially hostile brother. And so we saw the Esau encounter, the Laban deceptions, and then the Esau encounter. And then we immediately moved from the Esau encounter. Everything went well. He got through that, but it was quite, it was quite anxiety-ridden. Then we saw the Shechem horror. That was last week where we see that he moves into a place called Shechem. He lives there among those people. And there's a man, the prince of the city, rapes his daughter and then two of his sons take revenge on the Shechemites. 
And they don't just take revenge on the man who did this to their sister. No, they trick the people with circumcision. And you can go back and read the details of that account in chapter 34. They trick the men to be circumcised. All the men in the town are circumcised. And then they move through the city and they slaughter every single male inhabitant. The Shechem horror. These have been a very difficult set of years for Jacob. The Laban deceptions, the Esau encounter, and the Shechem horror. And I think this reminds us of something important as Christians. Isn't it often the case that God shows us his care through our trials? Think about this for a moment. How is it that we would be able to say, God is so faithful? God is so kind. God is so good. God lifts up my soul. God makes me satisfied and content. All of these things that we would praise God for are built on top of trials. It is, it is out of trials that we have the fruit of praise. It's out of all of the trials of life that we come to recognize that God is with us, as the psalmist says in Psalm 23, in the valley of the shadow of death. And we see that with Jacob. Jacob's praise is born on the backs of many trials. And that is the way the Lord brings praise to himself in our lives. And this is one of the reasons why James chapter 1 verse 2 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. So I want you to think about it this way. Let's say you're here this morning and you are experiencing some significant trials. This is a praise-producing time for you. I want you to think about it that way. This is a praise-producing time in your life. It's not just a, a hard time or a burdened time or an uncomfortable time. It is certainly those things, but it is a praise-producing time. And it will be a praise that will feed your own soul. You see, when we praise God, when we worship God, it is good for our souls. It builds up our souls. It gives life. It is life-giving. So God is at work in the midst of our trials. He was at at work in the midst of Jacob's Trials, But after all of these trials and after all of this watchful care, Jacob returns to Bethel. This is the fulfillment of God's promises to be with Jacob. This is the fulfillment of Jacob's vow to return and worship God. Back to Bethel. So if you would go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's word. Genesis 35, verses 1 to 29. We'll go through the entire chapter. This is the word of God. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. Little Paul's there answers me in the day of my distress. We have to have distress to know that. Verse 4. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had. And the rings that were in their ears, Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. 
So he called its name Alan Bakuth. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paddan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you. And I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. Verse 16. Then they journeyed from Bethel. When they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, do not fear for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Benoni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve, the sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun, the sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin, the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan, and Naphtali, the sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Paddan Aram. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died, and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's pray to the Lord, ask for his help. There's a lot of material here, and we'll just ask that God would illuminate by his spirit, his word, and that he would apply it to our hearts and bring change, as we know he does by means of his word. Father, we are grateful to come before you this morning, Lord. Lord, I thank you for Mark's decision to read those wonderful names. What a blessing that was to me. And Father, this is who you are, God, to your people. As John Calvin says in the Institutes, Lord, it's knowing who you are is not about speculating on your essence, but it is about knowing you by your great deeds in the lives of men. What you have done, what you have said about yourself, the glory that you have manifested to your people. Father, we praise you that these names have written on them your very works, that they demonstrate that you are a God who is intimately involved in the lives of your people. And God, in the midst of the mundane, in the midst of hardship, in the midst of distracting pleasures, Father, we forget these truths. We forget who you are. We forget what you've done. We forget that you are real. That you are and that you are a rewarder of those who diligently seek you. Father, would you grow our faith this morning by means of your word? Would your word build us up in wisdom Wisdom in Christ, wisdom to see him and what he has purchased for us, wisdom to walk in good works which you have prepared beforehand before the foundation of the world, wisdom to love, wisdom not to idolize. Father, we are so prone to err and we come needy and helpless in and of ourselves, Lord, we ask you. To meet with us today as a body. What a wondrous thing it is when the local church meets 
and praises you and prays to you and hears your word. God, what a wondrous thing this is this very day. Far more incredible than the most amazing thunderstorm or anything else we could witness that might display your power. Lord, being here today in your presence, Jesus, as you are with us and seeing you work. Father, we pray that you would work. We pray that you would bring change, that you would convert. Lord, there are some here undoubtedly who are not Christians, maybe Christians in name. Maybe if we ask, they would say, yes, I'm a Christian, but they don't know you, Father. They've never been forgiven of their sins. They've never entered into a relationship with you. Father, would you show them your glory today? And would they come to faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and eternal life? Would they turn away from sin and self? And would they trust in Jesus alone? Would they stop building their lives on sinking sand and build on the rock? Father, do this, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. So we come to this chapter. And as you can see, there are a lot of bits of information in this chapter. In some ways, uh, although this chapter really hangs together as a climax, as a finale, it also has a lot of little details. I mean, you're getting there, you get this mention of Deborah, and then you get this mention of Reuben and what he did. You're like, whoa, hold on a second, let me reread that. What did he do? And you're reading through this narrative and you see all of these bits of information. What I want to do this morning is try to tie all of this together to help us see the finale nature, the climactic nature of this chapter. And there are three things that I want to consider this morning as we go through. First, consecration. Second, reiteration. And third, transition. So let's begin with consecration. Look again with me at verses 1 to 8. I want to go through and highlight these chunks so that we can look at them in detail. So verses 1 to 8, consecration. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you. And purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel. So that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress. And has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had. And the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its, na- its name Alan Baku. It is unclear why Jacob has waited until now to go to Bethel. And commentators wrestle with this, right? Why is it that he didn't go to Bethel before? Why did he stop off in Shechem? I mean, nothing but bad came out of that stay in Shechem. Why, less than a day's journey from Bethel, would he stay and camp out in Shechem, why has he waited till now to go to Bethel? Was he distracted by the prospects of a good life in Shechem? Did he see some some potential there to enlarge himself, to grow in the land? He's made it to the land, so now he's good. This is an opportunity for him. Did he see some kind of prospect there in that place? Or was he simply waiting on God to call him back to that specific place. Some see such great disobedience in Jacob that he camps out at Shechem. And this is an act of utter disobedience because he really should have been in Bethel. But I think this not entirely clear what is going on in Jacob's mind. But whatever it is that's in his mind, here we see God moving him with a call. Verse 1, God said to Jacob, arise, 
Go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. And I think we see something very important here as the people of God. We see that God moves his people forward with his word. God calls. God speaks. And it is in that calling, it is in that speaking that we get the next phase or the next stage of this man's life. I think there's an implication for us here, and it's this. The only bridge, listen to this, people of God, listen to this. The only bridge between where you are now with the Lord and where you need to be is the word of God. That's the only bridge, that's the only means that God uses to move you forward. You're sitting in your Christian life, you feel as though you just, you're, you're dry, you, you have no desire for the Lord, you don't care about the salvation of sinners. The means of growth for you, the means of sanctification for all of us is the word of God. God speaks, things happen. God speaks, his people move forward. We see this from the very beginning with Abraham. God comes to Abraham and he calls him away from idolatry, from a pagan past, and he moves him with his word. And that's one of the reasons why we see repeatedly in these patriarchal stories, we see that the word of the Lord came to Abraham. The word of the Lord came. It is by means of God speaking that we Grow. This is why the Lord tells Abraham in Genesis 22, you obeyed my voice. And this is the reason Jesus says in John 10, my sheep hear my voice. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, those who hear my words and do them are like those who build their life on or their house on a rock. The only means of growth for us is the word of God. As long as the word of God, the Holy Scriptures, the Bible remains collecting dust, your life will continue to collect dust. The word of God is the means for pushing us along in the Christian life. What follows this call is consecration. And we see this in three ways, this consecration. And this is what we're going to look at as we go through these verses We see this in the purifying, the preserving, and the praising. So let's look at these three. The purifying, the preserving, and the praising. So first, the purifying. Jacob obeys, leads, and remembers. Now this is interesting because Jacob has not been leading very well recently. Remember in chapter 34, we get this kind of passive Jacob. I mean, what's happening with his daughter? He seems aloof to the entire situation. He hears it. And responds with nothing. His sons do this horrendous thing. I mean they they murder all the men. It's mass murder. In in an entire town. And all Jacob can say is. The people in the land are now going to be mad at me. He doesn't even deal. With the moral evil. Of his sons. We've seen a, a passive Jacob. One who does not lead. But here in this passage, we see one who is obeying, who is leading, and who is remembering God's faithfulness. So he says in verse 3, Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. Can you look back, Christian, and say that about your own life? He has been with me wherever I have gone. We've not always understood why. We've not always understood why we are where we are in life. But he's always been with us. And he always will be. In the hour of death, when you breathe your last breath, it's coming. At some point, for all of us. He will be there. He will be with us. And Jacob recognized that he had been with him through everything. So he obeys, he leads, he remembers. But even more, Jacob recognizes God's holiness. We need to see that very clearly here. He recognizes God's holiness. 
that God must be worshipped with a pure heart. And this is symbolized, of course, by the washing and changing of clothes. And remember, in the temple sacrificial system, there's a lot of that washing and changing and so forth that goes into. It's why there are all these pools in Jerusalem. And, and you hear about Jesus healing so-and-so at a pool. And, it, and all that, that's the reason is because there are these washings that go on in the sacrificial system as a symbol of the washing of the heart, the cleansing of the heart that must take place to approach the holy God. Kadosh, as Mark said earlier. God must be worshipped with a pure heart. And God must be worshipped with exclusive devotion. There is one God who is due all worship. God does not compete with your idols. He will not compete with your false gods. Made of your own imagination or stone or wood or whatever else. God requires exclusive praise. Because he alone is the God of heaven and earth. He alone is the living God. All other gods are idols. The prophets declared. And all the things that you live for besides God will not satisfy you in the end. They'll crumble. They're lifeless. They will leave you miserable like chaff. Empty. But God alone is worthy of our worship. God alone satisfies and he is due all praise. The reason there will be people in hell is because they worship false gods. And they reject the Lord. They hate his glory. And they rebel against his lordship. That's the reason there will be anybody in hell. And we should be there too. But by God's grace, through Christ, we will not be. So Jacob instructs the people to get rid of all their idolatrous objects. We see that here. And these earrings are probably, uh, they either, either have idols inscribed on them or they're melted down and used for idols. As we see later with the golden calf, they melt down all the jewelry and they make a calf, out pop the calf. <laughs> it's said there, they have all of these little pieces that they could use to make idols or that have idols on them. And he he takes all of these, he instructs the people to gather up all this rubbish, much of it fine metal, and then he hides them by burying them out of sight. This is wealth. This is not just a, a religious thing. This is wealth. And he says, get rid of it. Purge it from yourself. This is probably a mixture from Laban's house and Shechem's uh, and, and, and from Shechem. Remember at, at, with Laban that Rachel, she has the household gods. You remember that? And she, uh, she has those little figurines and she sits on them and, and she says she's uh, having her menstrual cycle so her father doesn't check there underneath her where she's sitting. And so these household gods are still present, it seems, in the family. And we're sure, of course, as they're interacting with those in Shechem, all kinds of idolatry there, we know. And so probably a mixture, Laban's house and from Shechem, they've gathered up all of these idols. And isn't this amazing that even though there are foreign gods among these people, God is still gracious with them. See, that's God. God is a God of good. You know, if you were to look into your own heart with God's eyes right now, you would see all kinds of foreign gods. That's the truth of it. Until we die, we will struggle with idolatry in our hearts. We'll struggle to cling too tightly to all sorts of things. And here's the wonderful news of God's grace is that even in the midst of that, God cares for us. He watches over us. He loves us. He's gracious to us. Here... God's people see how he must be approached in worship. To recognize our sin and his holiness. To cleanse and to pure purge those things in our lives that are not becoming to the Lord. That are not of the Lord. So here this morning you've come to this service. Have you come in this way? Have you come as Jacob's family came to Bethel? You just kind of roll out of bed and roll in here and here we are. And you're just kind of half checked out thinking about various things. 
here we see what the Lord wants for us as we come to praise him. As we come to to a church service, as we come to family worship, as we come to the Lord's Supper, we we cleanse and we purge. And this is an ongoing thing for the people of God. And one of the wonderful things about our Sunday service on the Lord's Day is that we corporately come together and we remind ourselves of this. Cleanse, purge, confess our sin, recognize that God is holy, not just casually going through this day casually going through this holy time where we worship the Lord as his holy temple. So we see, we see this purifying. Secondly, we see the preserving in an act of rage and revenge. As we've said before, Simeon and Levi have just killed every male in Shechem and plundered the people. News like this spreads. Uh, Even then, right? No news. No news to watch, but certainly there would have been much talk. And who knows how and how all the people would have been going around. And maybe there are some who escaped or whatever. Some, maybe some children or women escaped. And, and there's, there's news of what happened. Maybe people come to Shechem to trade and they see everyone dead. But this kind of thing would spread. And Jacob has expressed his concern that the other people of the land may now attack him and destroy everyone. But God is watching over Jacob. That's what we see here. Just as God's people are consecrated by their cleansing and purging, so too are they set apart or consecrated by God's protection. He preserves his people. We see that here in verse 5. And as they journeyed, a terror from God. I love this. I love this verse. A terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. Can you imagine that? Here is Jacob and his family. They're moving through the land. And it's like a cloud of glorious terror that falls on all the peoples around. Don't mess with my people. This is exactly what the Lord did when he destroyed the Egyptians in the Red Sea. Don't mess with my people. This, in a sense, is what will happen when the Lord returns and destroys the wicked on the earth. Don't mess with my people. That all the blood of the saints will be vindicated when the wrath of God in the day of the Lord comes upon the earth. The wrath of God abides on the earth. And one day the Lord will pour it out in full At the coming of Christ. A terror of God. A terror from God fell upon these people. Once again, as Calvin says, we learn that the hearts of men are in the hands of God. Every person is under the sovereign control of the Lord. Even the most arrogant kings and rulers of the earth. The richest of the richest. Their hearts, their very lives, their breath, they are but dust in the hand of God. The hearts of these people, these surrounding people, are easily moved to terror by the sovereign God. And this is why we live without fear. This is one of the many reasons we live without fear. is because no one can do to us unless the Lord has ordained it. And allows it in our lives. No one. We should be afraid of no one. As we share the gospel. As we go to the unreached peoples. Because the Lord is with us. And that may mean martyrdom. In his plan. But he is with us. And in the end. We will have eternal joy. Eternal joy. With him. He controls the hearts of men. So we see the preserving. Third we see the praising. See, the purifying, the preserving, and finally here under this point, we see the praising. The end result of this return to Bethel is an altar. Jacob erects an altar to praise God, to commemorate his faithfulness, to declare that the Lord is God. The Lord is his God. You know, the Lord is not just God. He must be your God. Is he your God? Do you stand back and marvel at him as a great God, or do you own him and know him as your God? He was Jacob's 
God. Verse 7, and there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. He enters into this land of Canaan, this particular part of the land called Bethel, and he builds this altar. Kent Hughes, a commentator, says this, the intent was to drive a stake into the heartland of Canaanite worship. See that imagery there? To drive a stake for the Lord God, the maker of heaven and earth, right in the middle of all this idolatrous worship of the Canaanite people. This act of worship should be understood as the fulfillment of what Jacob vowed to do in chapter 28, verse 22. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. So we are, I think, to understand here that Jacob carries out his vow. He makes this place the house of God. He worships God in this place where he had put up that stone at the very beginning, way back in chapter 28, and he gives a tenth, whatever exactly that meant for him. He does that there in the land, in the place called Bethel. And I'll return to Deborah's death in a moment in verse 8. But I want to go ahead and go on to our second point now, and that is reiteration. So we see consecration. We see this through the purifying and the preserving and the praising. But now we come to reiteration. And here I want to look at verses 9 to 15. Go there with me. Verses 9 to 15. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paddan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you. And kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you. And I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. As we look at these verses, the one word that comes to mind, at least to my mind, is reiteration. Here we have the main aspects of God's covenantal relationship with Jacob repeated. We have a repetition here, a reiteration of all that's gone before. We see this on various levels. And there are many parallels here with chapter, 20, chapter 17 with Abraham. I think we see this reiteration in three ways. And so this is how we're going to go through these verses, three ways. We see this in the persons, the promises, and the pillar. So let's look at each of those. First, the persons. Reiteration. We see that with the persons. Once again, God appears to Jacob with blessings, communicating the intimacy of the covenant relationship. God reiterates Jacob's name change to Israel. Remember that God had already changed Jacob's name to Israel, but here he reiterates that that is the case, reminding him that his strength is in God alone. You go back to the story of Jacob wrestling with God where his name is changed to Israel. And we see coming out of that, that he cannot rely on his own strength. He must rely on God's strength. God reiterates who he is. El Shaddai, God Almighty. You know, as Christians, we can never lose sight of these two things. Who we are. In God's eyes, and who God is. That's at the beginning of everything, and how constantly we need to remind ourselves of who we are to the Lord, that we belong to Him, that we are in covenant with Him, that He has changed our name, if you will, to in Christ, Christianus sum, in Latin, I am a Christian. Those were the words of many martyrs in the early church as they stood there before magistrates and they said to them, we will burn you alive in this place. We will feed you to lions and to tigers. Christiana Sum, that is my name. I am a Christian. We must constantly be reminded of who we are and who God is. El Shaddai, God Almighty and all those names. That Mark read to us earlier. 
So we see a reiteration, a reiteration of the persons. Second, we see a reiteration of the promises. In these verses, we have the offspring and land promises repeated. As God had promised to Jacob and to his ancestors, his descendants would multiply on the earth. A great nation, many nations, and kings would come from him. As God promised Abraham in Genesis 17. Do you remember when we came to that? Way back then in Genesis 17. Where God changes Abram's name to Abraham. And tells him that kings will come from him. Here we see the very same language being given to Jacob. And the land promised to Jacob and to his father and to his grandfather. Would belong to his offspring. As we look at these words of promise from the Lord, there is something very interesting to notice. We can't miss this. The words be fruitful and multiply take us back where? To Eden. They take us all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, to the very beginning of this book, to paradise, to walking with God in the cool of the day, to intimate relationship with God in perfect obedience and love. Before the fall, they take us back to Eden. The mention of kings point forward, points us forward to the kingdom of God. What is it that Jesus is preaching when he comes in the gospels and he's moving and going around from place to place? He picks up the preaching of John. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. In the coming of Christ and the pouring out of the spirit and the resurrection, there is the kingdom of God here now in the hearts of men. So we have here a pointer to that kingdom and the king of kings. And the mention of land points us forward to the new heaven and the new earth. Here's what I want you to see. Here in Genesis 35, we have words that are packed with gospel content. We have in these words, these promises to the patriarch, these promises to Jacob, we have a hint, a looking forward to a undoing of the fall, to an undoing of the fall back to Eden. We have a looking forward to the kingdom of God and a looking forward to the new heaven and the new earth. Here in these words, one commentator, John Selhammer, says it this way, the primeval blessing of humankind is renewed through the promise of a royal offspring. This is the gospel. This is the gospel of Christ in Genesis 35. Through a royal offspring. Son of David, have mercy on us. The men, various afflictions in the gospels, would cry out to Jesus. And people would say, be quiet. Don't bother him. But Jesus heard, son of David, he is the son of David. He is the Christ, he is the king, and he will reign forever. He is the king who comes from Jacob. Third, we have the pillar. So we see the reiteration in the persons, we see the reiteration in the promises, and now we see it in the pillar. Just as God's appearing, blessing, and promising are reiterations of what we've already seen, here we also see reiteration in Jacob's response, just as he had done in chapter 28, when God first appeared to him in a dream. Here he sets up a pillar of stone. He consecrates it, and then he repeats the name of the place. This is Bethel, Bethel, the house of God. So that's the, I think the second major thing we see here after consecration is reiteration. God comes to Jacob and confirms for him all that he has promised. And we would expect that, right? In a climactic passage, we come to the end of the story. We would expect for God to come and to to say all of it again. To leave on that note this great story. Finally, as we close this morning, let's look at transition. Verses 16 to 29. Then they journeyed from Bethel. When they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, do not fear for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, 
she called his name Benoni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve. The sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan, and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Paddan Aram. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre. Been a long time since he's seen his dad. Or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died. And was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. So what do we do with all of this? A lot of little bits here, little details. These verses form one large transition. That's really the big idea I want you to see as I kind of try to tie all these little bits together. These verses form one large transition between everything that has gone before and the rest of Genesis, the rest of the book. On one level, this is a very sad portion of the story. We see great loss here. Great loss that is glossed over, read over very quickly. But it's a part of this narrative. In fact, we have three deaths and one death implied. The deaths of Deborah, the nurse who cared for Jacob as a child in verse 8, at some point has come to be in Jacob's camp. We didn't get any mention of that before, but that somehow has occurred. And Deborah, the nurse who cared for Jacob when he was little... Rebecca's nurse, she dies. The beloved wife, Rachel, in verse 19, he worked seven years to marry her, and it was as nothing but a day. He loved Rachel deeply, dearly, and we've seen that all along, and now the beloved wife, Rachel, dies in childbirth, giving birth to Benjamin, verse 19. And then we see the father, his dad, the father whom he deceived and treated so flippantly, treated so dishonorably, has now died. Just as he has come to see him, his father dies. Verse 29. The death of Deborah without mention of Rebekah implies that Rebekah has also died. Do you see that? So Rebecca is not mentioned, and the implication is her nurse is mentioned, but not her. So Rebecca has also died. So do you feel the weight of that for Jacob? This is, a, this is a time of great loss. His wife, his beloved wife, his father, his mother has died, and the nurse that connects him to his mother emotionally, historically, she also dies. It's a time of great loss. It's also... A time of great sin. The incestuous and dishonoring act of Reuben, Jacob's firstborn. What in the world is he doing? Verse 22, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine. Remember that Jacob had two wives, Leah and Rachel. They were sisters. You could go back and read about that. We've talked about that. But he he had these two sisters. And then both Rachel and Leah had had a maidservant that was given to them. And each of them gave their maidservant, just as Abraham or or Sarah gave Hagar to Abraham, they gave their maidservant to Jacob so that he, they could raise up children on their behalf, these ladies. Well, now we read that Reuben, Leah's firstborn, has relations with Bilhah, Rachel's maidservant. This is, this is crazy stuff. But this is what we read here. This is what's happening in this family. Maybe it's an act of usurping his father or trying to prevent Bilhah from rising up above his mother Leah. And that's, that's probable, right? Because the timing, right? Rachel dies and then Reuben goes and violates or defiles Bilhah. Do you see that? 
Bilhah is Rachel's maidservant. And so this seems to be an act of protecting his mother, Leah, making sure that now that Rachel's out of the picture, Bilhah, Rachel's maidservant, will not rise up to be sort of first place now. But Leah will. Once again, this is strange to us. But this is great sin. Just as we saw with Simeon and Levi. This is great sin among God's people. Just like we'll later see with David. But this great loss and great sin are matched by God's great faithfulness and mercy. And there's no better place to conclude this, this, this story, this series of stories of Jacob, is to be reminded that here we see God's great faithfulness. God works in the midst of this fallenness and brokenness by completing, consummating, and continuing. He completes the family with the birth of Benjamin. He consummates Jacob's return by bringing him to his father's house. Remember the words of Jacob back in chapter 28, verse 21. So that I come again to my father's house in peace. What happens at the end of chapter 35? He comes again to his father's house in peace. He gets to see his father die and his father die full of days, a full life. They're reunited, restored in that relationship. God was faithful. He consummated all of his faithfulness to Jacob in this. And he continues the story. Of this chosen family. These verses mark a transition between the period of the patriarchs to the 12 sons. Here we have, with the death of Isaac and the moving away from Jacob, we have a transition taking place. We're moving now from the Abraham and Isaac and Jacob section of Genesis. Catch this, this is important. We're moving away from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs, and we're moving now to the nation. The nation being represented in seed form in the 12 sons. So we're moving towards the nation being preserved and saved through Joseph in Egypt. We're moving towards the nation being present, enslaved in Egypt, the beginning of Exodus. We're moving towards the beginning of the nation being redeemed, brought out, and being brought into the land by Moses and Joshua. This is the transition point between the patriarchs and the nation. I'll finish with a quote from Kent Hughes. He says, The life of this patriarch Jacob assures us of the triumph of grace. You know, no matter how crazy your life is, no matter how crazy you think your family is, the family you come from, the things that you've witnessed in your life, it's hard to beat what we've been reading. It's hard to beat these evidences of depravity. These evidences of sinfulness, brokenness, and fallenness. And and God is, is conquering over all of that. He's working in the midst of all of that. And that is what God can do today in your life. No matter what your family's like. No matter what you have done. There is freshness and newness. Jesus Christ makes all things new. He is gracious to sinners like us. Frail, wicked idolatrous. He's merciful. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace, your grace to these undeserving people, these men who chose to participate in wicked deeds, your grace to David, as we read later in what he did and the adultery and the murder. Lord, how much we see, even in the life of Peter, he denied you, Lord, three times with a curse and with an oath. I do not know the man. As Jesus, you were being struck, mocked, spit upon. Peter was denying you. Lord, this is us. We are this sinful. We need you to show us mercy. Or we will never inherit the kingdom of God. So, Father, we pray that you would be merciful to us in our sinfulness. That we would truly know how sinful we are. And that we would come to you with cleansing 
and purging and praising and that we would exalt your holy name. Trust in your goodness and your grace. Trust in what Christ finished at the cross alone and not in our works, but that we would be filled with good works because we trust in your promises and have the life of Christ within us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.